Hey guys, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, where I interview the absolute best health and wellness practitioners from across the globe to show you what they do so you can do it too. This is because, like you, I did not always feel that health was easy. I had tried different diets, exercise plans, but often felt misled by an industry that really thrives on you not getting healthy and always spending money on the next new thing. Because of this, I'm getting bare naked on health and pulling back the curtain to show you that being truly healthy is simple. Wherever you are in your health journey, I want to show you that with minimal effort, you can get maximum results and do what you love. Play with your kids, go for a hike, and crush it in your business all while feeling great. To give a kickstart, I encourage you to go over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to access my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and that the show is really sponsored by you guys. Each of you that works with me that I am able to take on as a client helps me to be able to keep putting out these podcasts for free. So I just want to thank you, each of you, for your love and support. Hey guys, I'm your host, Nick Horowski, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, episode number 101. Today's episode, I interview nutrition ninja Dr. Mike Israel. Be sure to stick around for the end of the show to learn how habit formation can transform your life. Mike's views on organics, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners, as well as the differences in eating for longevity, health, and sport. Alrighty, guys, and welcome to another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast. And on the line today, I have Dr. Mike Israel. Mike, first question I'm always curious about is sharing us with sharing with us uh, the highlights of your health journey up to this point. Jeez, my own personal health journey. Yes, please. Uh, yeah. Well, so you know, I actually began to. Uh, compete in wrestling when I was in high school and up until then I ate like well, sort of whatever I wanted. I remember um, there was a dietitian that came to talk to the wrestling team about how to eat for health and performance and I didn't listen to anything she said because I was entirely too mature. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, like 15 years old and then you know once I was in, uh, in later in high school and then in college I started powerlifting and I was just eating for size and eating for size and eating for size and then eventually um, when I was about 26 years old I had gotten up to about 200 70 pounds, considerable amount of muscle and some fat, and I just didn't really feel all that good. So I started to really investigate what kind of diet interventions, uh, especially, uh, you know, correlated with health and caused health. And, and that's really when I was about 26 years old, which is about um, six years ago, I really started to pay attention to the kind of um, health effect my dieting was having. And I started to get regular blood work and I was getting checkups two times a year. And, uh, with, uh, that was kind of when, uh, you know, I was relatively large, uh, and still in decent health, but you know, you don't feel so great when you're five, six to 70. Uh, it's kind of when I woke up and really started to pay attention to my health. And since then I have been, uh, attempting to really make sure that what I eat and how I, uh, engage in physical activity, et cetera, matches, uh, a, a reasonable amount of healthy expectation as well as my performance based goals. So then what was maybe that, I guess that turning point though, like what were some of the things that you noticed negatively when you were 26 and then what have been some of the most positive things that you've really implemented over those next six years? 
Yeah, so, I mean, I started noticing that uh, I was just really large, and it was really difficult to get in and out of uh, cars, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, in addition to that, um, you know, uh, my blood blood pressure was kind of borderline, but uh, I started, you know, and I was already quite a fairly well educated. I was midway through a PhD program, and we started learning that, you know, um, even borderline high blood pressure, eventually pre pre hypertension, sets you up for some unfortunate things down the road. And in, in addition to that, I had um, a lot of friends involved in powerlifting, and some of them were actually getting uh, CPAPs, right, breathing machines for sleep, because their necks had gotten so large. And I was lucky enough genetically to not really have that big of a problem. But when I was two seventy, I remember I couldn't sleep for too long um, on my back because I would in fact uh, have apneic episodes and wake up. So it was it was kind of that. Uh, uh, the situation where I was like, you know, I'm still pretty good, but I also knew that uh, individuals take their youth and health for granted, and they don't begin to, <laughs> into, they, you know, and it's something that's, I think it's, I got to cut myself plenty of slack and anyone else plenty of slack when in their 20s they think about setting up their health for later years. And I knew that I could continue to get away with this kind of stuff for a while, but um, I knew that it wasn't going to be forever, and I knew that, you know, those uh, apneic episodes that I was having uh, as minor as they were, I knew that they had to be addressed. So that was kind of like the big, uh, uh, you know, turning point for me to think, okay, you know, my blood work is good. My blood pressure is meh. My, uh, sleep apnea is not amazing, but not terrible. Let me do something about this and get my health better and keep it there before it goes any further. Because I know that once you get into some health problems, accumulative damage already starts to occur. And I think that's a very important point to make. Like you said, you're in your mid twenties, like a lot of people like you just feel indestructible still at that point, but a lot of damage is already being done. And like you said, you've been studying this. I mean, look, you're working on the PhD. I mean, you're studying tons of the exercise science, physiology, all all of the nutrition, and you recognize what that's doing to your body. Uh, But you made the change. And that's one thing that's awesome because you don't always see that until maybe somebody's 30, 40, 50. And, like you said, that cumulative damage has already just taken a massive toll on the body. Yeah, agreed. You know, too many people make the change. You know, there's no such thing as too late to change for health. But a lot of people, they, you know, they, they I want to say they should know better. They do know better. But they don't make an effort to make the change early. They end up paying for it. Is there anything that you see as far as maybe reasons, uh, at least as far as like clients that you've worked with where it's, reasons that often stick out there or that things that come up that really inhibit them from making those positive changes? Well, you know, I, I think it's actually much simpler than uh, sort of extent reasons that come up. It's that no reasons come up to make the changes, right? We usually coast on a, you know, how do we grow up as children, most of us in adolescence and young adults? We coast on a default of good health. Um, I teach this in some of my nutrition and health classes uh, as one, you know, in my, in my role as a professor. And one thing I teach individuals is, so for example, they'll hear from, from people that uh, are real health nuts, right? And they'll say, you know, once you start eating healthy, you're going to feel so good. You feel lighter and free right away. You've got so much more energy. And you know what? I really don't think that's a great way to talk younger people into eating healthier because young people, they eat a burrito, they eat um, cheeseburger, they eat pizza, they they eat ice cream, they eat all that mixed together, and they feel 100% fine. And they eat a salad (laughs) or something like that. 
and they might not even feel that good. Matter of fact, they'll feel a little bit more hungry, or you know, they'll get more bowel movements than they're interested. And and they say, you know, all this stuff is really, uh, you know, I just don't see the point. But the big thing I tell them is, look, you're not going to feel any different when you start eating healthy right away, unless you're older or well down that path. Um, what you are going to need to realize is that it takes some time for you to accumulate the negative effects of bad eating and the positive effects of good eating. So if you're looking for healthy food to just make you feel better right away, most cases you're going to be disappointed. But on the other hand, that's the danger of unhealthy food is that you usually don't feel bad right at the time that you're eating it. Only later when you go to your doctor and he says, listen, you know, this is some bad stuff going on inside your body, uh, may you get that wake-up call. So I think uh, because individuals come from that default, nothing really affects my health perspective, is why I suppose you could say that experience of youth and, and, uh, and young adulthood teaches us that fundamentally nothing is wrong. So in most individuals, it's not like something causes them to eat uh, poorly. There's just no implications for them eating poorly. There's no there's no negative feedback. Only when they start to get feedback, which usually occurs when their health actually starts to deteriorate based on all that quote-unquote uh, negative work that they've been doing over those years, that's when most individuals go, oh, geez, you know, really, I am in bad shape. And that's, you know, when you kind of uh, have trouble playing with your kids because you're so out of shape in your 30s or 40s, when the doctor first gives you that big announcement, like, look, your cholesterol's terrible and there's something you got to do about it. Most people, it's one of those wake-up calls to eat better rather than any kind of impetus to eat poorly. And, and, and people eat poorly just by default because, listen, junk food tastes really good. Um, so most people eat it. And, and, and if they continue to be healthy while they eat it, they don't really care. we got to look at it as an investment in your future. Yes, you can eat it now and you actually will be healthy now. The big question is, will you be healthy later? And something very similar occurs in obesity, which is directly tied to health. I've actually been able to demonstrate that there are many individuals, not the majority, but many, who are young and considerably obese but have all of the blood work of a healthy individual. And for a while, this research used to stump people because it was this idea that, oh, you can be fat and fit at the same time. Maybe these BMI scales and uh, looking at body weight and body fat is like a very poor way of measuring health. Maybe we should look at other things, kind of if people are eating healthy food and if they're active. But that got refuted Actually, quite recently, when they looked at some longitudinal data that said that those same individuals that were healthy when they were 25 but considerably overweight, almost all of them had become significantly unhealthy 5, 10, 15 years later. So in reality, what you're doing when you're young and healthy and eating poorly is you're setting up that stuff later. Once you've set it up, the road back is really, really, really tough. So it's better to set it up early to have good health rather than do a reactionary approach and try to do something about it once you're already down that path. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. <laughs> uh, but I, I appreciate you bringing up, like you said, it's you might not notice it right now. And that can be a very challenging motivator when you don't notice something. Uh, you don't have that immediate feedback loop. Now, Absolutely. Oh, and it's very similar. Oh, sorry, real quick. It's really similar with a lot of actual s symptoms of poor health. Even when you're in poor health, not just setting it up for later, uh, you may not know it. Um, uh, the pre-diabetic condition doesn't feel like anything. Even pre-hypertension, even considerable hypertension or high blood pressure, you don't feel anything. You feel fine. And that's one of the reasons why regular checkups with uh, your doctor are a good idea and why taking a proactive approach to your health is a good idea because there's um, literally hundreds of thousands of people walk into clinics every several years around the United States and find out they are type 2 diabetic and it's really bad. You don't want to find out like that because if you don't pay attention to your health, you will. There are until when you start getting symptoms, especially of diabetes, 
you are really, really far. I want to say far gone, but you're really far along a very negative path. And there's only so much undoing you can do at that point. So it's really good to take a proactive approach. Mike, getting into uh, more training aspects of this, like how do you combine, I guess, uh, your your nutrition, your training parameters, uh, either for yourself, for your clients, uh, to not only maximize, I mean, uh, that training effect and being as best you can in whatever given sport that you're playing, but also to maximize just health then too. Yeah, so you know, the, the biggest cause of health from a training perspective, not a nutritional one, is your volume of training. So is the more you train up to the point where you can no longer recover, which for most people is a whole lot of training, and most people will never get there. Only the very dedicated few can really test their limits that way. And of course, if you exceed those limits, you the result is, again, poor health. But generally speaking, up until that point you recover, the more the better. So, uh, and, and secondarily to that is the more intense the better. So one thing I try to build with individuals that consult me on health, uh, specifically if their goal is mostly to enhance their health, I tell them to try to maximize their levels of physical activity and maybe not maximize, but incrementally increase so they're used to it. They're recovering well. It's a part of their lifestyle still, but they're doing more. And when they feel okay, they do more. When they feel even better uh, and they're used to it again, they do more to eventually where they build up a considerable amount of physical activity. And because the type of physical activity is much less important than the amount, then my biggest advice to individuals looking for health is be physically active with a lot of what you like to do. If that's riding mountain bikes, great. If that's taking walks with your dogs, that's great. If that's gardening, that's great. Do what you love and do a lot of it. There, If you're looking for a 10-minute workout three times a week, that is not going to give you nearly as much health as a consistent dedication hour or more a day of, of physical effort. And if the harder the physical effort, the better. So if you've got a hobby like swimming or any other sports that you play or hard weight training or really hard cardio, maybe uh, you're part of a running club or a cycling club, if you do that and really sweat four to five times a week, that's a huge, huge benefit. So unfortunately, the news with physical activity, maybe not unfortunately, but kind of realistically, the news with physical activity and health is that the more you train, or work out, or be active, and the harder that activity is, the more disruptive it is, the more it causes you to sweat, breathe heavy, etc., the better it is for your health. Uh, and, and there's a very there's a top end to that for sure, but most people never hit the top end. So one thing I really want to communicate to individuals listening is if you're looking for tricks there don't exist. There are in, <laughs> there are right. There are enhancements to how you can carry out this process without wasting needless time. But there's a lot of needful time, not needless time, in in which uh, you're going to have to spend in physical activity uh, if you want your best health as a result. Now, how do you tie uh, even nutrition into that? Because certain times, uh, some people will argue that well, sports nutrition should be different than uh, just trying to live to be a hundred years old like those look differently uh would you have any arguments either for or against that yeah i think there's a good argument for that um i actually just covered this in class today with my students the uh, eating for longevity is a very interesting uh proposition it's a very tricky proposition it's actually a very different proposition than eating for health calorie turnover which means how many calories you burn added to how many calories that you take in um 
so it's it's not calorie balance, right? Calorie balance is if you burn 1,500 calories and you take in 1,500, you're at calorie balance and you're going to weigh some amount, probably not much because it's not many calories, and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. If you burn if you eat 3,000, there could be a concern because, oh my God, that's so many calories, you should be gaining weight. Ah, but if you burn 3,000 per day with a combination of exercise and other things, high levels of physical activity, then you're actually going to weigh the same amount. But that calorie turnover, to some extent, uh, is using your cellular structures that have a wear and tear mechanism that heals but not completely. So the actual best way to live as long as you humanly can, we're talking about super longevity, you know, 90, 100 years plus, is to consume relatively little food and be fairly inactive. You're active but in very non-disruptive modalities, mostly something like walking. Right? That'll be about the hardest exercise you do regularly if you want to live a long time. Is that a fun life to live? Not really. Does that actually predispose you to, uh, to, to, to you know, have the best health during that time? Nah, you know, uh, you'll, you'll be in fine health, but not in great health, but you will last a long time. So some individuals that may be interested in that, that's a very fine way to live. On the other hand, if you engage in a lot of exercise and eat plenty have a high calorie turnover, you may only live till 80, 85, 90, as opposed to the extreme years, um, you know, depending on, of course, other factors, but you will have a very high level of health throughout that entire time. So there's something different between mortality and morbidity, right? Um, individuals that are super active uh, and consume a lot of calories through their lives, if they're at a healthy weight, they tend to do the uh, sort of like diet age 78 from the big heart attack or the big stroke, or they just go in their sleep and that's that. But up until that point, they're incredibly independent, they're incredibly strong, they're incredibly resilient in both mind and body. So their quality of life is incredible. But individuals who live a really, really long time towards the later years, because they're so small, because they have such low levels of muscle mass, yes, those low levels of muscle mass and just body size in general keep them living longer. But I'm not so sure that quality of life towards the end is super duper high. So there is a different way to approach nutrition for longevity and, 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 and exercise for longevity, and that's just do a little bit less of both. However, if you eat well and make sure your calorie balance is in order, that means you are burning off what you eat so you're not an excessive body weight, you can have a high degree of health and plenty of longevity too. So for sports, it depends on which sports, but some sports even go further than nutrition for health. So we have three categories really, nutrition and training for health, or sorry, for longevity, nutrition and training for health, and then nutrition and training for sport. The thing is, there's a probably 80% overlap with most sports of, nu- of nutrition and training and health. And so if, you, if you compete in a sport like, let's say, gymnastics, you eat well, you're lean, your body weight is controlled, and fundamentally you're eating mostly healthy foods anyway to fuel your sport performance, and you're so active that it takes care of that activity component, you've hitting all the basic check marks of eating for health and being active for health, even though it's for sport. There are some sports that don't align with that as much. In the sport of bodybuilding, you're trying to get so big that that's probably not great for your health, but that isn't terrible as long as you take proper precautions. In a sport like uh, being an offensive lineman for American football, you're trying to get really, really big, and that's definitely going to cost your health. And if you're in a sport like sumo wrestling, well, that's the ultimate example of even if you do it correctly, you're not going to be healthy. The good news is most people's involvement in sports, CrossFit, golf, basketball, etc., the alignment between nutrition and training for health and their sport is very, very high, so they can be approached very similarly. I love the, I, I've not heard the distinction put that way between 
for longevity and for health. Uh, so thank you very much for that. Like, and, and sure. a question kind of off of that, uh, because, uh, I guess this is maybe intermittent fasting or restricted feeding periods. Could you, uh, or I'm curious what your thoughts would be on, okay, if you're going in more of like a 10 hour or maybe an eight hour restricted feeding period, uh, because that's been shown like to help increase longevity, et cetera, but you're still consuming that 2000, 2,500, 3000, whatever the cal- caloric uh, needs are for you. Uh, could that give you maybe more of an added benefit for both worlds there? I'm not sure on the and the evidence on that to my knowledge is unclear. Okay. The evidence I have seen seems to show something much simpler and, and uh, total lifetime caloric load is a huge determinant of longevity. So if you fast for considerable periods of time mm-hmm. and then you eat a normal diet after that fast, you will be of low body weight and you will benefit in all of the ways that fasting has to offer, particularly by keeping your calories low. On the other hand, If you fast for some period of time, same period of time, but you make up for it by eating an excessive amount of calories during that non-fasting window, it doesn't seem that all the benefits of fasting come through. There will be some, but the ones on longevity probably won't amount to much, and you'll end up being in the same spot. So calorie-controlled fasting, I'm not sure has been demonstrated. Uh, Intermittent fasting has been demonstrated to enhance longevity, certainly not in humans. Um, Mm -hmm. So it is by no means clear that if you ate at a regular regular feeding period, if you kept your calories very low, it's probably going to result in a similar longevity. Um, Although that may be a pretty miserable way to live because then you're always kind of hungry. (laughs) So (laughs) so, yeah, but so with with longevity, I mean, keeping those calories down really is is a huge, I mean, it's probably one of the, maybe I don't know the golden rules, but one of the central tenets of the study of longevity is is one of the first discoveries was that when you take animals and you control diet, reduce their body weight and feed them not so much and don't let them get too crazy physically active, they live longer and the same seems to occur in humans. Yeah, I mean, I want to live for a while, but if I'm not going to enjoy it, like you said, that's that can be pretty rough too. <laughs> Totally. And, you know, I think for most people, they're going to end up on a trade-off somewhere between just diet for health and and dieting for longevity. So I think there's a good, you know, so let's say that, you know, for your frame, your healthy weight can be anywhere between 140 and 180 pounds, right? If you, there's a way to live your life where you weigh about 180, you're super muscular, you're super fit, super strong, super active, you're going to have a great life and, and and most of it is going to be spent in excellent health, but you may not live as long as you were on that 140 end, right? But but there's no reason to go to 120 because then you're underweight and super unhealthy and you're going to die sooner and experience considerable morbidity during your life. And there's no reason to go to 200 pounds, which is again over and is going to limit your lifespan and cause some health problems as well. So I think in that healthy range, the lower body weights of that range are more longevity uh, enhancing. And I would say that for many individuals, not all, uh, the higher ends of those still healthy ranges are quality of life enhancing. And I think it just comes down to goals. Hey, what, what are you looking to do? Absolutely. Goals and preferences. Yeah. Uh, and uh, just knowing that trade off, though, is a good idea. So we can stop looking for, you know, fake golden fleeces of maximizing longevity at the same time as uh, maximizing, you know, uh, the amount of food that you're eating and the amount of exercise that you're doing. Now, those golden fleeces are to be found, but they're probably going to be found in biotechnology uh, with future advances and yeah. likely to be found in the latest new or, you know, organic food from Brazil or something like that. Okay, so kind of going off that, uh, 
like i mean i obviously you're very well versed in a lot of the literature like is there anything new or interesting that you're just kind of geeking out on right now that you're either find really promising really interesting or just can't believe that this is getting as much press as it is even <laughs> well there's certainly uh in the second um in the second category i can think of a lot of things um uh for dieting and health i would say that um, the amount of attention that organic foods receive is absurd. The amount of fear that genetically modified foods receive is equally absurd. And the chronic kind of worst case of all is artificial sweeteners. So between those three categories, uh, I'll tell you what the state of the literature is. Um, all the studies so far taken together, multiple reviews of literature basically say the following. Organic food does not enhance health in any measurable way, and uh, but it just happens to be much more expensive. Um, genetically modified foods have been shown to, to have zero negative effects on health, and people fear them for no reason at all. And artificial sweeteners are some of the most well-tested food additives of all time. You'd have to – in order to depreciate your health on them, you'd have to consume such abysmal amounts of them that it basically turns into a, 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 like an active hobby to just to prove somebody wrong instead of something anyone normally would do uh, to the tune of something like 18 cans of Diet Coke per day every day. And that's at the very bottom end, and they're not even sure if that's going to hurt you. Um, I think that's kind of obscene. Uh, and those are – that's the state of the literature at the time with regards to those three phenomena. And, and most people literally believe the, the backwards reality. Uh, they literally have backwards ideas about what is true in regards to those. And that all stems from uh, what's been called the argument from nature or the uh, naturalistic fallacy is that what is natural is good for us and what is artificial is bad for us. And while certainly we can find some things to fall into those uh, discrepancy categories, uh, that's not a hard rule we use for everything because uh, it's just not true all the time. And many of the things that make us the healthiest are in fact completely artificial, while many of the things that are quite dangerous for us and unhealthy are natural. So I think people are led to these conclusions about organic foods, genetically modified foods, and artificial sweeteners. And, and what they end up doing is increasing the expense with which it, uh, they're eating healthy and reducing their quality of delicious products that they can eat and really reducing the quality of their lives. Um, whereas they could integrate conventionally farmed foods, genetically modified foods, and artificial sweeteners into the diet, suffer no health effects, reduce the price of their food consumption, increase the diversity of their food consumption, and be just as well off for it. I was not expecting you to say that. There you go. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I'm not as well versed in literature. Uh, so I'm not going to say one way or another because I still see so many different things, like so many different catchy headlines this way and another about really all of those. Uh, I know personally, hey, I'm not going to use it. I'm not going to go. Uh, I'm not going to have like the genetically modified, the artificial sweeteners. Uh, but I still think, hey, People have to find what works for them, too. Uh, if you don't want to do those, don't do those. But you're still not going away from people that need to be eating whole, real foods. And that's what I love, though, too. For sure. Well, so, you know, the, the whole foods have a really, really big advantage. Um, when, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with processing per se, but most processing does a couple of things. One, it makes food taste so super good that we have trouble uh, getting full on it and stopping eating it. Secondly, it uh, inserts considerable amount of added sugar and saturated fat to food usually to make it incredibly calorically burdensome. 
And in addition to that, for people who happen to be salt-sensitive, processed food is usually very salty. Take those three things together, and you get a recipe that if you eat a lot of processed foods, you're going to be much more hungry than usual. You're never going to get as full as you like. And in order to get full, you have to consume more of these processed foods. Already, they have a ton of calories in them to begin with, so you're going to be more likely to exceed your daily calorie limits and consume too much saturated fat at the same time. If you're salt-sensitive, the high salt intake will also lead to high blood pressure. So now you're off to a place where if you eat a lot of processed foods, your health is going to be a considerable concern if you continue to do so. In addition to that, most processed foods don't have a lot of vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals, and fiber, all of which are very good for health, the additive benefits for health, and they are very, very highly available in mostly unprocessed whole foods. For example, lean meats, uh, veggies, fruits, whole grains in that order, and uh, healthy fat sources like nut butters, avocado, etc., olive oil. And if you consume your diet mostly from healthy for sources that are not processed, you get all of those benefits and the food keeps you fuller for longer and is not as calorically dense. So not only do you get all of your micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals, fiber, but you also get a really, really big anti-hunger effect so that your chances of eating excessively are lower and your chances of obesity are lower. We have an obesity, you know, has been called an epidemic in this country and really around the Western world. And, you know, you, it's really easy to come up with, with a, uh, you know, with a solution, uh, quote unquote solution, or really easy to come up with an idea, at least why this obesity epidemic is occurring. And here's why, because junk food tastes really good. And people who eat a lot, it's got a ton of calories and people who eat a lot of it, um, add calories to their diets and, and grow larger and larger and less healthy. So if we stick to mostly whole foods, Man, you know, I've just never really heard of that many people saying, you know, you know, when you walk into a doctor's office, how often do you hear, you know what, uh, Nick, I tell you what, you got to lay off that broccoli and the kale and the, you know, the, those peaches are really doing you in and too much chicken breast and lean fish. You know, that stuff's making you gain weight. No one's ever heard that because you don't <laughs> overeat. You know, bodybuilders try to overeat on those kinds of quote unquote clean foods or very healthy foods to accomplish their, their muscle gain. And I'll tell you what, having done that and continuing to, to do that, Overeating on those kinds of foods is an abysmally difficult task. Nobody does it for fun. I mean, of course, some people would just be able to gain weight on, on genetics alone, and they can even eat you know, whole foods and gain weight, but those people are in the vast minority. It certainly doesn't count for even a tiny fraction of, of the currently obese people. So if you stick to mostly whole foods and get away from the junk foods that are highly processed, uh, you're going to end up eating fewer calories, more of the calories will be nutritious, and in that two-step punch, you're going to be able to be much more healthy. So what, if those are conventionally farmed foods, I think the literature is highly supportive of that being okay. If you want to consume artificial sweeteners instead of uh, added sugars to juices and colas and things like that, I think that's great. But even if you're in, in not into that and if you insist on eating organic or non-GMO and if you insist on staying away from artificial sweeteners, that's totally Cool, as long as you stick mostly with whole foods. And I got a, uh, uh, one of the big reasons I'm saying this is that um, there are individuals out there, and, you know, God bless them because they provide us with the things they want. But the thing is that, so in a free market system like we have in the United States and most Western countries, Supply and demand rules, and uh, as soon as they figure it out, individuals are going to try to sell you what you're going to buy, what you want, and it might not necessarily be good for you because cool thing is they don't value judge. They'll sell you whatever you say you want. They're not going to take look out for you. That's your job, right? So if you say, I want organic, I want non-GMO, and I want no artificial sweeteners, 
they will figure out how to make junk food that meets all of that criteria, and they will sell it to you. It will be delicious, and you'll get fat and unhealthy just the same way as you used to get off regular junk food. So one big tip for that whole food consuming is that's what's going to keep you healthy. Don't just say, you know, it's totally fine to eat organic and GMO-free and non-artificial sweetener, but don't think that just because you've checked those three boxes that you can go into eating, you know, vegan cookies and stuff like that. I don't know if you've been to Whole Foods lately, but my God, I buy the vegan chocolate chip cookies because they taste even better than the regular ones. I only do that when I'm trying <laughs> to gain weight. <laughs> and there's like, you know, these peanut Justin's peanut butter cups. They're amazing. Yeah. They taste just like Reese's cups, but there's nothing healthy about them. Right. Don't so kid yourself it, into thinking so. Absolutely. It's number one is making sure you're not eating excessively, staying healthy and fit, making sure to do enough exercise. And when it comes to your diet, the easiest way to keep weight off and keep healthy is to consume mostly lean meats, whole grains, fruits, veggies, and healthy fats. And if it's not, uh, if it's a food that's highly processed and it's very junky and it's super delicious and loaded with all kinds of stuff even if it passes the organic gmo and artificial sweetener test that barely does anything to it at all in regards to helping you not gain weight from it so be very careful about the food at the health food aisle if it's processed food at the health food aisle it's still gonna make you fat if you eat it in excess now of course if you eat it every now and again it's totally fine but you know, we have an obesity epidemic in this country, not because people are eating junk food every now and again, <laughs> mostly everything all the time. Yeah. And I, going back to the point, I think where you said like, it's an effort to eat clean whole foods in excess. Like I, I, I compete in strongman. I compete right now under 200. I've competed in the 231 class before mm -hmm. and it is absolutely effort to get there. Like there's just no doubt about it. Uh, especially if I'm not doing it, uh, like you said, if it's not just sleeves of cookies and whatnot, like if you're eating totally. real whole foods, no matter what they are, uh, it's it's going to be uh, quite a job to get any substantial mass gains with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, the cool thing is, is that food, the whole food is, is tasty enough to, to really satisfy your hunger and your cravings, but not so super tasty that you just want to eat more, right? The, the prototypical example of that. Um, is like potato chips. I mean, how many, who, who has a couple of chips? Nobody. I don't even want to meet the people <laughs> that have a couple of chips. I have no interest in, in their personalities, but uh, most people will have a bag, right? Or they'll go overboard and have a whole lot. And, uh, you know, who has too many peaches or too many strawberries? I mean, geez, you know, you get full real quick. And not only do they have very low, you know, calorie amount per how much food volume it is, they're the kind of foods, natural whole foods that you eat and then you're satisfied and you're just not going to eat that much more. So with that combination, it really does allow people who stick mostly to unprocessed foods to maintain healthy body weights much more easily than individuals. Even if they're counting their calories that are trying to count a bunch of junk food into their calories all the time. So Mike, I'm curious, what are you uh, working on for you? Like, what are you training for right now? Uh, what are you really uh, looking to do with for yourself? Well, yeah, in, in two weeks I compete in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at the Arnold Classic. Um, Fantastic. So, yeah, so my training is peaking for that currently. And then uh, I'm also, I just started a, a, a fat loss phase, and hopefully I'll be my leanest ever uh, within a couple of months. And if I successfully pull that off, then I'll probably be competing in bodybuilding. So um, that's the situation. And How do you uh, bridge those two sports? Because they can be rather different as far as training modalities. Totally. I have a couple of tips. So 
One is that I use my jujitsu for some of my cardio. So that's good. Um, uh, because I just don't have to do a lot of incline walking or step mill or anything like that <laughs> because jujitsu, you know, fighting for your life tends to burn a lot of calories. And, um, in addition to that, I make sure to fatigue manage very well. So I keep real good track of my training, real good track of my stress levels, real good track of how much cumulative fatigue I'm holding. And I make sure to deload when necessary, back away from one sports hard training a little bit, let, let the, the healing occur. And also within a temporal period. So within any one day, I make sure to have um, a lot of space between the two training sessions. That allows for recovery and adaptation to occur and the next training session to be both uh, hard and productive at the same time. So, you know, for example, if I was to lift right before jujitsu, my jujitsu would be crappy and my recovery from lifting would be affected. Uh, on the other hand, if I separate them by four to six hours, I've recovered considerably from lifting and already the adaptations have been set into motion so that when I do jujitsu, there's minimal interference. I think a lot of people who do multiple sports or multiple physical hobbies try to stack them too close together. So I'll say, you know, I just do my lifting right after jujitsu or vice versa. And that really turns out to not be a good thing. Now, not everyone has the time to split their sessions a.m. p.m. So that does take a considerable amount of effort. Uh, but, uh, that's what has to be done. And, and lastly, I take, um, a calculated decrement in both to, to do both of them. Would I be a better jujitsu practitioner if I didn't have to bodybuild to, you know, workouts one and a half hours, six times a week? Absolutely. I would do double the jujitsu. I'd get better way faster. And then, uh, on the other hand, if I was to do, um, exclusively bodybuilding, I wouldn't have nearly as many bumps and bruises from jujitsu and I would recover better and I would have better workouts and I'd be a better bodybuilder. I think a lot of people should be and can be looking for a good trade-off but too many people are looking for the ultimate combination that doesn't affect either one of them and especially if you're sufficiently advanced athlete one of them's got to take the hit or the other or usually both so if you're realistic then you can sort you can sit down and say okay i know i'm going to take a hit in both of these let's find out how i can take the smallest hit and then you can arrange your training make sure to be on your eating another thing i didn't mention is that with my nutrition after my bodybuilding workouts, I make sure to consume plenty of carbohydrates and proteins numerous times before my jiu-jitsu workouts later in the day because I know how important recovery and adaptation is and how fueled it is by nutrition. So one thing you'll never see me do is um, eat food – or sorry, train hard, not eat for a couple of hours, then go train hard again. And that just would be nonsense. So with those kinds of strategies – I try to get as much of the best of two worlds as I can, knowing that I'll never be perfect. That sounds like a fantastic way to bridge that. And like you said, you know the pluses and minuses of, of everything that you're throwing in there. Uh, so you've taken all that into account. And like you said, you're tracking your stress levels, the cumulative fatigue, like all of this is going to come into play. Uh, now, if you just went about it and like you said, just, hey, just went and just trained, didn't look at any of this, didn't look at your nutrition, your sleep, I mean, so on and so forth you would probably just be getting run down and probably not leaning out the way you want to. And you'd probably just be getting crushed uh, with the jujitsu as well. Absolutely. It would definitely not be the, uh, a great thing. So it's, uh, it, you know, once you're doing both, there are good and bad ways to do both. And I just try to do them as well as I can in conjunction. So Mike, I know we only have limited time here. So a couple last questions that I want to check on uh, with you. One of the things that I'm always curious to see is, who would somebody else want to hear on this podcast? Like what is just something that you would want to ask somebody that you've not been able to before or somebody that you just want to hear them talk on a certain subject? Well, are you familiar with Dr. Spencer Nadolsky? I am not. You should look him up. 
All right. Do- Dr. Spencer Nadolski is a former D1 wrestler and uh, currently a recreational and very um, impressive uh, lifter. Mm-hmm. And he is a practicing medical doctor. And he his specialty is lifestyle medicine and helping individuals with overweight, obese, or poor health conditions use uh, exercise, proper nutrition, and of course the right medical interventions to enhance their outcomes. And, and he is a real, real big resource on that. He has a considerable amount of popularity in social media, and uh, is all around swell guy. I would definitely look into him. What would you want to hear him um, if you, if you could ask him a specific question or just totally. hey, here's a topic like what would you want to hear from him? Sure, um, I got the exact question for him. I'm 37 years old. Mm-hmm. I'm really overweight. I'm absolutely in poor health. Where do I start? Because there's so much information coming at me and looks so intimidating. What do I do? What's a plan that I can set into motion? What baby steps can I take to start? rectify my position and start the path to better health because and i would love to hear him answer that at length i guarantee you it's going to be a good answer but uh <laughs> it's a real big it's a real big mystery because a lot of people are stuck in that exact position right where they know they got to do something but there's so much out there and dr oz and all this stuff and they just don't know some of them end up going through you know uh paralysis by analysis and not doing much or delaying their choice some people make the wrong choices so uh you know invest their time in in fads and other bs that just straight up doesn't work so uh i would really love for him to talk about that i think that would be very insightful maybe without going into uh full depth what would baby be like the first three things that you would start with uh if somebody presented like that for you jeez Man, I really wish I had Spencer right now. Uh, <laughs> do you so, want to you do know, the phone I, a friend here? <laughs> for sure. So, um, you know, I think that um, starting out, the mentality of starting out slow is a good idea. And what I would do if I was in that position uh, as an individual, um, I would start to try to eat a little bit healthier. Basically, modify my food choices to be less junk food and more healthy food. Not all the junk food out, just less. And that would probably give me some good weight loss for a while. Once I was eating mostly healthy foods and was in the habit of doing so, I would start to pick up some kind of very limited walking or some super easy limited exercise program. Um, they have a lot of classes, yoga for regular you know, adult populations or something like that, just to get me moving. And then I would do that for several months. And, and in conjunction with the already cleaned up diet, I think I would be well on my way. And then after I'm have a habit of exercising, have a habit of eating a good diet, then you can start to set goals for weight loss, manipulate calories on purpose, and really start to program your fitness. I would then maybe hire a personal trainer, a nutritionist, etc. But one thing, and you know, at my company that I help to run Renaissance Periodization, one thing we run into every now and again um, is individuals who come to seek our advice and our wisdom that don't even have a health habit. And it's very difficult to guide someone through that. That usually has to be something they embark on, maybe not on their own, but it has to be a lot of their own stuff, right? So once you are already in the habit of eating relatively healthy and already in the habit of doing some kind of exercise, and habit is that really important term, we can help you a lot at Renaissance. But before you get there, eventually I'm sure we'll have a division of the company that does that, but before you get there, 
though establishing those habits is a really good idea because it, there's no quick fix. We already know that, and it's all about establishing habits and later going through programming. The reason I say this is that uh, if you start with advanced programming right away, you know, meticulous food portions, exact times of eating, sets and reps in the gym, you got to count everything all at once. That's so overwhelming. That's so much information. And that's such an artificial way to live your life. It's so uh, it's so re regimented, so rigid, it can trap people and scare them right off. But if you already have a health habit and a health hobby, you know how to eat well fundamentally, you eat healthy food most of the time, and you're already engaging in exercise, all of those programmatic changes, those specifics, they're just enhancements. They actually make the path clearer for you at that point. So I would say that save the specifics for later and really start establishing decent habits. And the good thing is, if you're really out of shape, just eating healthy, not even counting anything, and just doing some kind of physical activity, three sessions of whatever per week, you're going to get really big results for months and months and months just doing that. And just when those results, those beginner losses of fat and beginner gains of muscle start to peter out, that's when you'll be ready psychologically to enhance your programming and look at things in a more specific, more regimented way. And at that point, the regimentation doesn't really scare you because it just tells you how much healthy food to eat, how little to eat, this and that. And that's easy because you already know what healthy food eating is like. But if you don't know either one of those, both of them at the same time can be a huge crush. That is absolutely a beautiful way to put that. Uh, like it's I weird think, i teach this stuff for a living yeah right <laughs> uh but uh, no truly the simplicity of it and you're right the, nothing really works without just starting those habits somewhere it has to be one thing because if you try and create 10 habits at once the next day you're going to try and create a new 10 habits because those first ones aren't going to work you bet so Mike, in closing, like you just uh, talked about Renaissance periodization. I mean, you have the Renaissance diet book out. Like, can you just share where everybody can find all your stuff? I mean, because there's so much information that you're putting out there, and it's so awesome. And I just want to help uh, share that with everybody so that they can uh, connect with you then as well. Well, thanks so much. So renaissanceperiodization.com has got all the form products that I've designed, all the diet templates and stuff, and a bunch of the books that I've helped to author, including a book that I think for your readers would be super interesting called Understanding Healthy Eating. And it really goes step by step in telling you what is healthy eating and how can you best do it. Um, that book has received a lot of praise. It's been very well reviewed. And we have a bunch of other books, including books specific for female dieting, right there on that website. Um, on Facebook, I'm Mike Ezratel. It's a public profile. Come be my friend or follow me, troll me, ask me questions. <laughs> It'll be awesome. We have a lot of fun. And then I'm at RP Dr. Mike on Instagram. That's mostly half naked pictures of me doing bodybuilding, which is some weird for some people. So, you know, come on Instagram if you want to see pictures of boring food I eat and half naked pictures of myself. If not, no big deal. And uh, lastly, if you go on YouTube, just type in my last name uh, and you get a bunch of videos of podcasts I've done before, instructional videos on training, a lot of videos for juggernaut training systems that I've done that are really great. And especially if you, you know, drive into work, click a YouTube video, plug in your headphones and listen to my stuff. If you like more of what I have to say, maybe you'll, uh, we'll see you on social media down the line. Excellent, Mike. Uh, make sure everybody, and, and that's how I've, uh, that's how I digest a lot of things, listening to stuff on my rides to work. So that's where I've gotten a lot of it, uh, as well as a lot of the articles and everything you've written. So uh, again, Mike, thank you so much for all that you've shared with everybody today. Uh, I hope they can pick up maybe a habit or two uh, to implement into their lives. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me.
Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to head over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to check out the show notes for today's episode. While you're there, go to my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and the show is sponsored by you guys. Each of you that I work with helps me to be able to put out podcasts like this for free. So thanks again for your love and support. Finally, if the show has helped you out in any way, please head over to iTunes to give the Bare Naked Health podcast a positive comment and five-star rating. This really goes a long way in getting the word out with how simple health can be and helping to share the podcast with others. So thank you.